Today we're going to be breaking bread, and so I thought it apt uh, that we would take this passage found in Jonah chapter 4 and look at the contrast between Jonah and the, our true Jonah, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. So let's read together the passage, and then we'll delve right into it. Jonah 4, 9 to 11, please read, uh, stand, rather, for the reading of God's word. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to thanking you for this opportunity that we have of just reading this portion that brings us to the conclusion of this book, thank you for the grace you have given us in delving into this book, into reading these verses and allowing the Word of God to be a blessing to us. We've been enriched, we have been challenged, we have been comforted, we've been corrected through your Word, and we thank you for that. And we pray that once again, you would enlighten us, and quicken our hearts as we delve into this passage, that you would cause us to glorify your name, draw us closer to yourself, and this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. In his letter to the Romans, Paul reminds us that all Scripture as a specific purpose. It was given for a reason. Every verse, every passage, every chapter, every book of the Bible. In Romans 15, verse 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So God's word instructs us. Therefore, it impacts our thinking. Our thinking is transformed by the word of God. That's the first thing it says. It instructs us. And then it also impacts our emotions, for it encourages us. It encourages us because without God's word, we would be at the mercy of our emotions. At times we'd be very happy and at times we'd be very sad. We'd be all over the map with our emotions. But God's word harnesses, right? It, bring, it reigns in our emotions. So when things go well with us, we don't get overly joy. We know that it's temporary. 
And when things go bad for us, we don't get overly discouraged, right? We grieve, Paul says, for example, but not as those without hope. For example, as death comes into our home, we, it's, it's not that we don't grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope, right? You've, if you've met someone who has no hope and has lost a dear one, uh, they grieve and they're broken. They're in shambles because of the fact that they are not encouraged by the word. And then, Paul says, it impacts our will. So our mind, our emotions, our will. Why? Because it produces perseverance. So God's word uh, allows us to go on. We weather storms, difficulties, trials, hardships of all kinds that come our way. So every time I've gone through a very difficult time, God's word has been my state. It's been like an anchor. All right, so we thank God for the gift of prayer. We thank God for the gift of fellowship. They all serve a wonderful and, and, and very important purpose in the life of the Christian. But God's word has this stain effect, right? It causes us to weather storms. It causes us to persevere. So the, the word of the Lord is adequate for every season, for every situation, for every person who is in the body of Christ. And the book of Jonah has done this for us. We have been encouraged. We have been enlightened. We have been challenged as we've read this book. It does not disillusion us. However, there is this, no, it's like it leaves us hanging, right? For the last verse says, should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals. And you say, well, that's how it ends? <laughs> that's odd. Why does it end this way? We're going to see in a moment. And the book of Jonah, of course, is a, as I've said over and over, it's an factual book. It, it actually happened. Every part of it happened. And I think this ending proves to us that it happened exactly the way it, has, it was written. Because Jonah is left angry. And God is there pointing out his anger, challenging him to think his anger through. Right? And there's a reason for that as well as we're going to see. Um, in reading through this book, we have been also reminded that Jonah points to a greater Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, we read Jesus saying these words, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation. So the people, these are talking, the Lord is talking about people who've lived Hundreds of years apart. So the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation, meaning the people of his day, and at the judgment, and will condemn it, this generation, generation in which Jesus lived, because they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
something greater than Jonah. And Jesus here is pointing to this bizarre scenario, right? What you have here is at the preaching of Jonah, which at best was cryptic, right? No, no word of hope, none whatsoever. It's not that he said, repent, and maybe there will be no destruction. No. 40 days, you're destroyed. Get ready. You're finished. So at the preaching of this cryptic message, the entire city repents. The entire city is spared. And then conversely, when Jesus comes on the scene and lives among his own people, there's no repentance. Except for a few, except for a very few, there's no repentance. He came to his very own, John writes, but his own did not receive him. And how strange that God's covenant people, Israel, should reject their own Messiah. Jonah comes into the picture, Nineveh repents. The true Jonah comes to his people, and his people remain unrepentant. So therefore, Jesus says, on judgment day, the Ninevites are going to stand up and say, how could you not repent? We repented at a half-hearted message given by this smelly prophet. You could have repented. You should have repented. This was your Messiah. This was the one you were waiting for. He healed. He taught. He gave sight to the blind. He gave proof and evidence and signs that he was the one you were waiting for. And you rejected him. How could that be? That makes no sense. They will condemn you. Besides the judgment that will come from the very throne of God, the men of Nineveh will add their judgment as well. So in light of this verse that we just read in Matthew, I would like to finish the series by drawing a comparison between Jonah and Jesus, who is the greater Jonah. The word Jonah, as you recall, means dove. And Jonah was no dove, as we can see. He was a man of God. He was a prophet. He was used of God. But with the Ninevites, there is no dove-like character. But Jesus, not only is the line of the tribe of Judah, but on him came the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and rested on him. He was both lion and dove. He was a, a, a lion that chewed up all darkness around him and challenged it and destroyed it and crushed it. But at the same time, he was gentle as a dove with those who were sinners and failed in their ways and were willing to repent. So let's look at the differences between Jonah and Jesus, the greater Jonah. The first difference I would point out is in their sense of entitlement. In verse 9, Jesus, uh, Jesus, God rather, asks Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point 
of death. I want to die. That's how angry I am. I am extremely angry. Imagine answering God this way. After all is said and done, we finally come to realize that Jonah had issues, deep issues underneath the surface. He is an angry man. We saw last week how he vented towards a plant. I was upset because a worm had destroyed the plant that God had provided to give him shade. But his true anger is not towards the plant, and it's not towards the worm, and it's not towards the scorching sun, and it's not towards the wind that was making him faint. It was towards God, more importantly. And God calls out his anger with a question. Do you have a good reason? One good reason Give me one to be angry about the plan. In other words, Jonah, do you actually think you are right in being angry? I just spoke to someone not too long ago who was quite angry about someone and uh, has been angry for quite some time and doesn't even acknowledge that they are angry. And I approached this person and I said, we need to forgive people and accept them uh, for who they are and how they talk. And we don't need to just build this kind of anger and let it brew within us. And so it's very destructive. But this person wasn't very welcoming. Did not accept my words. Jonah, do you actually think you're right in being angry? His anger reminds us of the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. When the father is celebrating with everyone the return of his lost son, right, after squandering every cent of the inheritance, the father finds out that outside the party, outside the very doors of that party, a son, his elder son, was there angry, and what does the father do? And that's how the parable ends. You remember, he goes out and he pleads with him. He tries to make him reason. He tries to make him see that this is the reason we should be rejoicing. But you see, both sons are prodigal. One is prodigal being home. The other is prodigal being afar. Right? A picture of the Gentiles that had moved away from God altogether and the Jews, though, being very well acquainted with the law and having the priesthood and the oracles and the promises and the covenants, having all of it, yet they were distant from God nonetheless. The distance is in both the elder son and the younger. And that's how the parable ends. It ends with the older brother angry. And so here too, Jonah is angry. And we too, like Jonah, can be angry and feel justified in our anger, believing that somehow we've been wronged, that God is not fair in his dealings with us. Why? Because there is a pain in my life. There is an issue in my life. There's something that I've been praying about and God has not removed it. Or we could be angry because God is not giving us what we think is ours. And so we are angry. And our angry spills over into our work and into our relationships. And others know that we are angry 
Because when we are angry, we cannot hide it. It's volcanic, and at times it does come out. What happens when we stay angry? First, we lose fellowship with the Lord. That's why the Bible says, be angry but do not sin. Don't let your anger fester to the point of sinning. When you're angry, you deal with that anger right away. The second thing we lose is perspective because we, lose, we see everything through the lenses of our anger. Just like Jonah. He was angry and he saw the plant and he was angry at the plant. He was angry at the worm. He was angry at the heat. He was angry at the wind, angry about everything. And the third is that we end up being alone. The elder son was alone. Everyone was inside at the party. Jonah was alone. Anger brings solitude, but not the right kind of solitude. Loneliness, deep loneliness. I've talked to many angry people. They're all very lonely, very lonely. An incident in the life of Jesus will help us see how easy it is for us to be angry over issues that we deem very important, but in actuality, they're not. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55, we read about Jesus going towards Jerusalem. It says that when the days were approaching for his ascension, in other words, for his death and then his ascension to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem because that's where they were going to accuse him, try him, and then eventually crucify him. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem because they would ask, where are you going? Are you, is your final destination Samaria? No, our final destination is Jerusalem. Jeru- this is the shortcut. We're going through this pass, going through Samaria. And they refused Jesus and his disciples. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Another version adds, and Jesus said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are. What kind of spirit. From this passage, we can see how easily the disciples felt angry. Why? Because they felt entitled. Entitled to go through. Had it been anyone else receiving this reply, anyone, that person would have said, do you know who you're talking to? You're saying no to me. You heard about world rage. Very common today. Why? Because someone cut someone off. Or because someone didn't put on his flash. Or someone is just tailgating just a little too close. Or whatever it may be. And people blow up angry because they're angry about other issues. And they become entitled and become very entitled towards others. So here the disciples had become entitled, and they came to the point of justifying their anger, their anger by referring to a verse, a passage found in Kings, where Elijah is summoned by the king of Samaria, and it was sending, this king was sending men in 50s, right? He'd send a group of 50 soldiers, and the soldiers, the captain of the soldiers would say, if you're Elijah, would you please come down? The king wants to speak to you. And Elijah would answer, well, if I'm the servant of the Lord, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And fire came and consumed the whole bunch. This happened twice. 
And then at the last group of 50, the captain came and bowed and said, please spare me and my men. Just come with me. The king wants to see you. And he went with him. So what the John and, and uh, James did is just refer to that verse and say, let's consume them. Right? They're Samaritans. They're not allowing us access. They don't recognize your office. They don't recognize who you are. They don't recognize who we are. They deserve to die. That's true. If you're saying this to the Lord of glory, you deserve to die. But Jesus says, no, we're going to go around. Anger clouds your judgment, just like it clouded the judgment of the disciples and it clouded the judgment of Jonah. Do you have any good reason, Jonah? Yes, I do. Even to the point of death. Jonah felt the same way. He believed he was in the right to say no to God's compassion for the Ninevites. And his thinking, Israel alone should receive mercy and God should not have mercy for anyone else. I'll ask again, what is it that you feel entitled to? What is it that gets you angry? What is it that gets under your skin? Now that we've seen how our Jonah in the Bible dealt with anger, let's see how Jesus dealt with similar situation. If God points out Jonah's anger, what does he point out in Jesus? Well, he points out something that he says of him and of him alone. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, we read, After Jesus was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I am pleased with his spirit. I am pleased with everything he does. While God was not pleased with Jonah's spirit, with Jonah's entitlement and Jonah's anger, of course, he was very pleased with Jesus' spirit. In Jesus, there was a different spirit. The attestation from heaven was, I am pleased with him. Let's look at some scenarios in Jesus' life that could have elicited rightful anger, a rightful anger, an an angry response that was justified. When he came into this world, Jesus was placed in a feeding trough, a feeding trough, a manger. The Lord of glory was not even granted a right place in which to be born, a feeding trough. And then his parents had to take him to Egypt to spare him from the the angry uh, soldiers that were dispatched by Herod. Couldn't God have protected his own son? Couldn't he have kept him there and get rid of Herod, get rid of his soldiers? There's no entitlement in our Lord. Jesus didn't have, the, didn't have access to basic necessities, yet we don't see him perturbed by this. 
over the fact that he didn't have a place to stay, that he didn't have a pillow in which to lay his head. Think about when he was called to pay the temple tax. Think about it. Jesus was asked to pay the temple tax. He was the one who told Moses how to build it. Right? He was the one who led Solomon in building the temple. And now that he comes to visit, he asked to pay the temple tax. He could have said, you're asking me to pay the temple tax? Really? Because that's what he told Peter. Peter says, the children of the king, do they pay taxes? He said, no, they don't pay taxes. Go pay the tax. There's a coin waiting in a fish. Paid for you, paid for me as well. Isn't that remarkable? No sense of entitlement. In other words, Jesus would, did not get angry with things that typically anger us. We get angry when we pay taxes. We get angry when we don't have basic necessities. We get angry when people say no to us. We get angry when people don't acknowledge us. They don't respect us. But Jesus never got angry at these things. Never. Remarkable. Jesus had every reason to be entitled. He is the Lord of glory. He could have insisted on being treated differently. He could have insisted on having more. He could have demanded access into Samaria. He chose to give up his rights, his privileges. At all times, Jesus was gracious when misunderstood, when judged. In Jesus, we have something greater. How wonderful is our Lord, greater than Jonah. The difference in their reaction towards the wicked. Verse 10, we read, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. As we noticed last week, Jonah was overjoyed when this large gourd, a plant that allowed him to be in shelter from and away from the sun's rays, providing all the shade that he needed. He was overjoyed, and this plant sprang unexpectedly. And while this plant gave him relief from the scorching sun, he felt at ease. He felt comfortable. But why didn't Jonah go, just go somewhere else? Why didn't he just walk away? Why didn't he just go back to his hometown? Why? Why? Why did he hang around? Well, verse 5 tells us why. Until he could see what would happen in the city. He was a spectator. That's what he was. He had found himself a spot outside of the city, uh, high enough so he could look and wait to see as the 40 days transpired. He had spent one day preaching, right? And now 39 days waiting. Waiting for destruction to fall on Nineveh. That's the kind of heart. Jonah had. He had a great deal of happiness over the gourd that provided him shade, but he demonstrated no compassion, but a hardened heart towards the Ninevites. Jonah took the posture of a spectator. Imagine, a prophet, a man of God. Jonah's concern was for himself, for his reputation, as we saw last week. He wasn't the least bit concerned with the people of Nineveh. In fact, the Lord tells Jonah, should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 
people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left. This expression speaks of children, 120,000 children. This expression of not knowing the difference between their right and their left. So if there are 120,000 children, you can imagine the city was uh, at inhabitants in the millions, as well as many animals, the Lord adds. Concern for the animals. But Jonah had no concern for the animals, no concern for the children, no concern for the people, no concern what they're all. For him, the city should have been wiped away. Jonah's main concern was for the plant that provided shade. He wanted shade for himself. He found no joy in the thought that his country's arch enemies were being spared judgment. That was the level of compassion we witness in Jonah's life. But what about in Jesus? What level of compassion do we witness in Jesus? Well, this is an obvious answer. In Scripture, we read of a day when he stopped, literally stopped, and looked at a city. In Luke 19, verse 41, 44, it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept. He too took a posture, but he wept, saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you on every side, and they will level you to the ground and throw down your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." Here the Lord is looking at Jerusalem and forecasts what will happen to them within years. They would completely be raised to the ground. The, temples, the temple would be raised to the ground. Their city would be burnt. And the children within that city and everyone else would be slaughtered. While Jonah was gleefully waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, Jesus had a different heart. He wept, knowing full well what would take place in that city. Tears rolled down his cheek as he foretold of Jerusalem's complete and utter destruction. What a difference between the Lord's heart and that of Jonah. In one, there's a desire for punishment. There's a desire for vengeance. There's a desire for elimination. But in another, there's a desire for them to be spared. And he continues to preach and he continues to warn and no one gives heed to our Lord. Did the Assyrians kill and maim and burn down cities in Israel? Of course they did. But if you take all the evil combined by the Assyrians and everyone else in this world put together they do not come close to the evil we've committed against our Creator and our Lord. They don't come close. We don't see it. We think the harm that's done against us, the injustices that we've had to endure, and all kinds of hurt that we've had to deal with, that is bad. We don't think, and we cannot see unless the Lord opens our eyes to see it. Unless we see that we have sinned against him and that we deserve judgment because we do not, we are not rather in a position to judge others because of the evil that we've committed. We need to be saying, as David said, against you and you only have I sinned. 
But rather we say, he's hurt me, she's hurt me, he's done me wrong, they've done me wrong, and we remember that, and we dwell there. And this is where Jonah was. In the book of Ezekiel, we read a verse where the Lord reveals his heart about punishing the godless. Pay attention to this. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back. So he's pleading. This is God pleading with Israel, pleading with his people. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then should you die, house of Israel? Why should you die? That's God's heart. It gives us a close-up, this verse, of where God is, where the Lord Jesus was and is. It shows us what a difference, what a contrast between the heart of Jonah and the heart of Jesus towards the wicked, towards those that do not repent, right? One delights in showing mercy, and the other delights in vengeance and punishment. Third is the difference in their obedience, in the, their obedience. In Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3, we find these words. And we've read these many times. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, because their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. When Jonah received word that he was to go to Nineveh, he went in the opposite direction. He fled. He ran away. Yes, for the most part, Jonah was an obedient prophet. He was an obedient servant of the Lord. But when the mandate was given to him to warn the Ninevites of impending doom, Jonah said, no way. That's too much. God, are you going too far? And Jonah responded by disobeying by going in the other direction. When he finally does repent in the belly of the sea creature, Jonah makes his way to Nineveh and there begins to share the message given to him by the Lord and yet he shares it half-heartedly. His obedience is partial at best. Below that heart of his is brewing this expectation that Jonah, that Nineveh rather, would not repent. Once again, we see another striking difference between the Jonah of the Old Testament and our true Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, we read what our Lord did when he was asked to do something unthinkable. This is what happens in heaven. The decree was established that Jesus would leave his throne. God the Father was sending his Son. And so Paul writes... Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to. This is my throne. This is my glory. These are my privileges. I am Lord. He didn't fight to hold on to them, but gladly gave, gave them up. Emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. In these few verses, we see how the Lord Jesus was asked to leave the realm of glory and descended into this dark world, into a cold, unwelcoming environment. Light comes into darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it, says John. It did not grasp it, could not take it in. He emptied himself of all his privileges, of his rights. He set aside his glory. He took the form of a bondservant, the lowest ranking servant, and embraced his task with all willingness, with all of his heart. When the father asked the son to do the unthinkable, the son did not respond by saying, well, I need to think this over. This is a big challenge. This is a great and awesome task. No, he did it. See, you can look at Isaiah when he was asked to go about the city with his buttocks exposed for three years. Think about it. His buttocks exposed to show the people of Jerusalem that they would be reduced to poverty. Three years. They didn't believe him, of course. Or you could look at Hosea, the prophet, who was asked to marry a woman that would cheat on him repeatedly and say, how could God ask this of Hosea? Or you could look at Job and say, how could God do this to Job? Take away every child of his. Render him penniless. Destroy his reputation. Bring him down to the ground. You could look at all their pain. Combine them together. And yet they would not come close to the pain that God was giving to his son. Asking his son to endure. His sorrow, his suffering were unspeakable. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 gives us a glimpse into the pain, into the a vision of his hurt, of his suffering and sorrow when he writes these words, the writer to the Hebrews. In the days of his humanity, Jesus offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears. Think about this. See, we see that passage in Gethsemane where he drops, sweat drops like blood to the ground. But we don't get the full picture. But in Hebrews, we get a, a, another aspect. He's crying out loud. He's pleading with tears to his father, to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout or godly behavior. He was heard. But how was he heard? Was he delivered from the cross? No. He was just encouraged to continue to persevere. Jonah ran away. Job complained. All prophets suffered and they endured, but they endured with, uh, with, a, with a sense of, Lord, when is this going to end? When is this pain going to end? Jesus had the right to say no. He had the right to be saved and to have his, um, have his enemies destroyed. But he endured the greatest suffering of all. He is the Lord of glory. But he gladly and willingly humbled himself and embraced the cross and all that came with it. He humbled himself before the Father to accomplish the mission given to him for the sake of the elect. When given the command, 
Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. When given the command, Jesus ran towards the presence of his father. He embraced it willingly. Psalm 40 depicts the heart of the Lord and his willingness to become the atoning sacrifice. Listen to these words. And they're repeated in the letter of Hebrews, somewhat different. But this is what it says. Speaking on Jesus' behalf, you, to the Father, you have not desired sacrifice and meal offerings. You have opened my ears. You have not required burnt offering and sin offering. And then I said, behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book, I delight to do your will, my God. That's what Jesus said to the Father. I delight to do this heavy, this unspeakable will that includes suffering, sorrow, abandonment, that includes accusations and being shunned by everyone. I delight in doing your will. That is the difference between Jonah and our Lord. Hebrews 5.8 continues, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Think about it. Jesus never obeyed in heaven. He didn't have to. He's Lord. Obey what? But he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned to obey, and he did it perfectly. He submitted without missing a beat. He obeyed when obeying was unthinkable. He did what was humanly impossible to do. Jesus is the ultimate bondservant. You see, all the prophets were bondservants. All of them were required to do difficult tasks. All of them. Of course, Jonah too. But they all had, did, did it with difficulty and they needed encouragement and they didn't do it perfectly, but not our Lord. He was the perfect bondservant. Yes, in Jesus, we have something greater, greater than Jonah. While in Jonah, we witness a sense of entitlement, in Jesus, we see someone without any entitlement. While in Jonah, we have someone who seeks vengeance and lacks mercy and wants his enemies punished, in Jesus, we have someone who responds compassionately and wants enemies to repent. While in Jonah, we see partial obedience. In Jesus, we witness full, unwavering obedience. How wonderful is our Lord. He deserves the glory. When we sing about him, it's not enough. When we think of him, it's not enough. All the thoughts combined of God's people brought together in one channel and directed towards heaven are not enough to describe the worth and the greatness of our Savior. Nothing that we do can match, can come close to the worth of our Lord. What a wonderful Savior. And as we come here today to break bread and remember our Lord, whatever he asks of us as we go through this pilgrim walk on here, on this earth, whatever he may ask of us, it's not difficult. It's not. He carried the heavy cross. Our cross is but a light cross. Yes, you may say, but it hurts. It's heavy. Yes. But with his grace, you can endure. By looking at him and what he endured, 
you can endure and you can continue to obey and serve him. You can. Because he did it all for you. So now we are called to obey for him and to bring him glory this way. May he give us grace. And if you do not know him today, may the Lord open your heart. May he draw you to himself today that you may see Christ as your savior, as the one who gave up everything so that you could be a child of the Father. Let us pray. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts. Thank you for being the greater Jonah, for leaving the realm of glory, abandoning your rights, giving up your privileges, giving up all the glory that was yours, and then coming to save us, to give up your life as an atoning sacrifice so that we could be spared the wrath to come. How wonderful that you did this willingly. How wonderful that you chose the task that no one else could have accomplished. No angel in heaven and no good individual of this earth. No one but you could have done this. We praise you, lovely Savior, for loving us, for saving us, and for making us yours. And today, as we break bread together, we give you thanks. And we ask also for grace that in those areas where you ask us to obey you and where we are chafing or perhaps pulling away from obeying you, that you would give us grace, Lord, to obey you and not do our own thing. Lord, we ask for this because we want to honor you because you did the ultimate, the unthinkable for us. This is not too much to ask of you from us. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your people, for becoming children of the Most High God, to be the bride of Christ. What an amazing privilege. And we thank you for you did it for us. You made it all possible. And we praise you. We ask for those who do not know you, they will be drawn to you, Lord, for your name's sake. Amen.